today's podcast, recapping the four uh, NBA playoff series, especially what happened last night, getting ready for tonight with Raja Bell. Trying to figure out all of this stuff, especially like Miami, Philly, where you're at. We're going to do something a little different here. Nikki Glazer, comedian. She is incredible. She's got a new TV show out. She's going to help us with life advice. So buckle up. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Honda. Honda is committed to achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. And the Prologue EV is their latest innovation in that journey. The Prologue is all the great things you expect from Honda in an EV. As an SUV, the Prologue comes with class-leading passenger space, with intuitive features and clean, thoughtful design. The Prologue is more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. I'm going to start by running through all the series. We'll um, probably not spend as much time as all the stuff I did with Bill on Sunday, but we know... We know we have a big game five coming up, but let's start with the game fours. Golden State and Memphis, this one get evened up. I'll be honest, like everybody knows I love Steph and love watching this Warriors team, even though I've really appreciated Memphis. I felt like I was rooting for this one just to be done, more so than I was rooting for any team. Uh, this was a brutal game um, for most of it. Golden State had 38 points at the half, their lowest playoff half since the 2015 finals. They started 0-16 from three. The last playoff team to start a playoff game 016 was OKC in 2011. But the other thing is, is everybody's watching Golden State miss all their shots. Memphis started 2 of 16. So it wasn't like anybody was making any shots. The live total, so pregame, the total on this one over under was 222, 222 and a half. <laughs> At the start of the fourth quarter, the live odds went to 187 on the total. Um, Steph had a bad shooting night. Everybody had a bad shooting night, really. Uh, you know, the people that mattered. And then Steph had 18 in less than eight minutes in the fourth quarter, and that's your game. Golden State's first lead was with 45 seconds left in this one. Steph made a couple threes. He drove the lane, got the free throws to put him ahead. Um, there was a lot in this one to not love. Although I would say defensively, there was one play that just kind of sums up what Draymond Green is capable of, both on effort and instincts and intelligence. Just about four minutes to go. Memphis is leading 89-88. This was the block charge that got reviewed that wasn't overturned, and I don't think it should have been. But before Green tried to get the charge on Jaron Jackson, Kyle Anderson was at the left elbow, and he went to turn towards the paint, and Draymond helped off of Jaron Jackson, who couldn't make a three. And it wasn't so much like, I'm not respecting Jackson as a shooter. I'm just going to show so that when Kyle turns on the defensive player thinking there's maybe room in the paint, I'm just going to be here. And Draymond basically read it ahead of time, going, let me just be here and show him. And then it kind of stopped everything, and then Jackson actually got the drive. Uh, I don't love wasting challenges because you're mad. It happens too often in the NBA. It also happens too often when the player just sits there and says, I'm going to do it. And then Mike Brown filling in. I don't know if that led to it. It's not like he hasn't been with Draymond for years, but... I, I don't know. I mean, the, the player is always going to think that he's right. And then when you say, hey, go ahead and challenge block charge, it's just too hard. It's too hard. And in that spot, Jaron Jackson only hits one of the free throws. Um, he didn't shoot it well, missed all seven of his threes. So if you look at it and say 21 and five, but like I said, everybody missed in this game. If I wanted to, could I have a more concerning who is Memphis's number two guy 
like long-term conversation, you know, no jaw last night because of the knee. I guess I could. And I just feel like that's kind of the Jaron Jackson story and what you sign up for. But he's also 22 years old. He was healthy this year. He's terrific defensively. But you're kind of in that spot going, all right, who's going to carry them offensively? I think Desmond Bain is hurt. It's very clear. He walks like a guy who has back pain right now. Uh, The numbers from Minnesota to this series are completely different. Granted, Golden State is better. But Bain, who in college, if you watched him, what was great about his NBA story is that he figured out his role very early in the NBA. But he actually is capable of doing a lot more on offense because he did that at TCU. And then you've got Dylan Brooks. Um, Memphis was up one with under a minute. He took a right side bomb three. And that's kind of what he did all night. He was 5-19, 2-9 from three. I don't know if it was the crowd booing him because of hitting Gary Payton and knocking him out maybe of the playoffs um, that had something to do with it where he was like, I'm going to show you. Well, he hasn't shown anybody other than just he's going to shoot and he's going to miss. He's 8-35 in this series, 4-18. His percentages are 17-16% and 16% with zero free throws taken. Uh, last night was gross. And I like Dylan Brooks because I think he's one of those tough guys you kind of need. Um, defensively, we saw what happened in game three. I'm not saying he's some lockdown guy, but he's going to try and he's going to get physical. He's going to use his fouls. Uh, he's, he's been a nice story for his career, but last night was gross. The Warriors have had the rebounding edge in all four games. And I do like um, what, what Memphis did. I like that they tried some Steven Adams stuff in there, but you know when it's at the end and they're going to go small and the ball's pinging all over the place, they're going to be hunting for Adams and trying to bring him away from the hoop. But I do like in those moments of trying to you know, I don't like abandoning somebody who's basically a major rotation guy. Uh, I don't like being stubborn and keeping him in there all the time either, but I kind of like that from them, and they still almost stole this one and even it at two without job. But 3-1, I think we all know what's going to happen. Boston ties it up with the Bucks 2-2. It's a weird series for me. You know, yes, do I want Boston teams to do well? Am I absurd about it? No. Um, you know, I've had a hard time with the Celtics team all season because I was like, all right, they're really disappointing, and we've seen this now for 200 games with this group, minor changes, and then they turned into this just unbelievable team where all the models loved them. Uh, I always thought a little bit too much because when they're down to Milwaukee in the second round without Middleton, because I did think they were going to lose that game last night. I'm like, all right, they're going to go down 3-1, and you know maybe there was just a bunch of stuff that was wrong. Granted, no Rob Williams, and Smart seems a little limited but Derek White's starting to turn it around. But Tatum, you could tell from the jump, and we're going to get to why this means something in the Western Conference a little bit later, but you could see, and this is what I always think about really great players, is that you can have your bad game, but then you go into it going, okay, Wesley Matthews tried to beat me up a little bit, did a good job, was more physical, was just in my shirt. Be ready, have a counter, go quicker. And you could see from the beginning of this game, that's what was happening. Bill and I talked about Al Horford in game three, he went 22-16-5, and 4-7 on threes. You go, probably not getting that again. No, it got even better. He was the story again in this game. He's the reason they won game four. 30 points, his first ever career playoff game of 30. He's only had nine career 30-point games in his entire career. Uh, and for those that know me well, know that you know before, before I was other guys, like Al Horford was my guy. I loved him, loved him out of the draft and then towards the end of Boston it was always a little frustrating because I don't think Celtics fans were like wait this guy's a max guy like why isn't he doing more why isn't he going to initiate more offense that's not really what he does he just doesn't make any mistakes and is is somebody who's capable of doing a bunch of different things and we maybe thought that that was over but he's so smart defensively but the scoring part of it and then the aggression 
I don't know if that was payback for Giannis staring him down a bit and getting a tech for taunting, which, you know, whatever. And then Horford went right back at him. I thought the elbow was, you know, was was worthy of a technical himself. But Horford has been the story in this one. So as I watch it play out, I'm I'm fighting with like two different I don't know if it's it's not seeds of doubt. It's just these planted things perception wise of what I think of these two teams at their best and at their worst. Like everyone should be scared as hell of Giannis, okay? Um but Boston, when I, when they're down, I'm like, well, maybe this is why I thought the models are a little excessive. And now it's even, and they're going home. They've got home court. And like, who knows? Maybe they're going to be in the NBA finals. I didn't feel that way when it looked like they were helpless against Giannis. Let's talk about the Giannis part of this, too, because Milwaukee, if we're, if we're looking at the critical side of it, which, you know, after a team wins a championship in a way, you're like not supposed to do that stuff anymore. You're not allowed to. It's like, hey, whatever. They want a title. But there's there's two things with them that I think are kind of repeating themselves, but it's not as big of a deal now because they won. Had they not won, I think we'd be more critical of what they do in some of their defensive or excuse me, offensive decisions and how they do stuff. So Giannis stepped out of the game at 509 in the fourth quarter, came back in at 420. Yes, he was exhausted. And that's why they tried to buy him that minute. I mean, he plays with such ferocity that I think it's sometimes he exhausts himself. Remember that story from Jared Greenberg to the sideline who shared with us during the playoffs last year, like Giannis was sitting really early at the beginning of game one um, or the beginning of each playoff game because he was so worked up. They were like, all right, let's rest you and kind of reset you. He only took one field goal the rest of the game that I have in the tracking there from the last 420 on. So Giannis, who's attacking Jalen Brown on switches, Jalen, who's out there with five fouls. There was Derek White minutes out there to attack, too, where we've seen so many times that Giannis has gotten the switch that he wants, and then he goes and attacks or he drives and kicks because he's so great at playmaking now. Uh, The mid-range game is better for him. And they didn't do any of that. They didn't, and it turned into the Drew Holiday shooting fest. Drew has 92 shot attempts in four games. I realize without Middleton, that's kind of what you'd expect. He's 34 overall, 31% from three. I know he had the big shot in game three. He was 0 of 5 in the fourth quarter. Remember last year when we were like, why won't Milwaukee attack and injure James Harden, who we could see wasn't moving around well, right? Why aren't they doing this more? Um, remember Drew, where right up until, I don't know, what I, there might have been the game seven win against Brooklyn. We were like, what is going on with him? Like, this is the guy you trade all these picks for? This is the guy that you give this kind of contract with his injury? Like, the Drew Holiday story did a complete 180 in the playoffs. I still really like Drew Holiday, okay? I would want Drew Holiday on my team. But tasked with this kind of scoring load or this this attempt load uh, is probably not really what you want. So a little surprised that there's so much Drew shooting and even more surprised. And you can say Giannis is tired the last 420, but what does it mean? He's not going to take any shots? And I believe he only took one. We did so much Philly-Miami Sunday, I'm not going to spend too much time on it. A hardened 16 points in the fourth is everything you really need to know about game four, and it's it's pretty simple. I don't believe he's ever going to be the guy again, you know, MVP vote stuff. I don't think that's a ridiculous thing to say. I think he needs to do a better job of taking care of his body and and honestly, you know, caring about being a professional athlete a little bit more, and it scares the hell out of me, like when anybody is this good and doesn't want to do it, so good luck with that contract. So, that is an entirely different thing. It's a lot like Jimmy Butler in game four going off is like, at least you have a guy who is capable of doing that in the playoffs that understands what is expected of him. Uh, that's 
we spend so much time talking about those guys, but that's that's kind of the job. Like, hey, help us figure it out when everything's breaking down. We're now games three, four, and five in a series. Everybody knows what's going, right? Like there's counters here and there, but now we're we pretty much know what everybody's trying to do here. And your special talents, your shot creating talents, you are so special. You have to figure out a way. And the fact that you have Harden, if you're Philadelphia, who you would hope it sometimes is still capable of that. Not every game. Almost no one is capable of it every game. But do you have one of those games in this series? One or two of those games in this series? And Harden gave you that in game four after having really bad second halves the first couple. Shooting variance is a big part of this that we probably don't spend enough time on, but it'd be a really boring podcast if I came on and just said, hey, this team made more threes than that one. And that's really all it was, just luck on threes. Um, that probably tells a story far more often than we'd want to admit, but it wouldn't get us paid, would it? Uh, games one and two, Miami plus three, plus six and three-point makes. Games three and four, Philadelphia plus nine and plus nine. But more importantly, this series is just weird because I think we all had to reset and go, oh, that, okay, Embiid is back. And so as dismissive as we were, is, is Philadelphia trying to win this thing without him, which I don't think they were going to. It didn't look that great. Um, we have a series that I have no idea. I have no idea how to read this one other than I'd expect if Embiid stays healthy, he's just going to get better and better, and it's opening up everything. So it's not always just shots made, shots missed, uh, as I run through games one through four. The shots that you are getting have changed on both sides because of Embiid. All right? So it's it's not just luck on that one. It is the Embiid factor where now Bam isn't running free like he was in the first two games. And you're helping off of him, opening it up for Miami. And conversely, for Embiid, you're more worried about him and stuff is happening around him that probably makes the shot attempts a little bit easier. I have to look up the shot quality stuff on Second Spectrum, but I couldn't figure it out this morning. Final one, Chris Paul, game five. I know. I'm aware. I'm aware of of what this means. Okay? If we look at the Dallas side of this, I'm not sure what Phoenix is going to do. Do you let Luka go off? Um, do, you, do you perhaps tighten up some less welcoming switches with Luka? Uh, throw in more zone? You know? Um, no pain, no shaman. I mean, pain right now is shooting 30 and 8% from three in the four games. But then again, who are you going to have play guard for any of those minutes where you have to figure out a way to kind of rest Chris Paul a little bit? The Aiton story is concerning. He had the worst plus minus in game four. I don't think that's, you know, it's it's a game, that, but it felt like it played out. There's there's some real Rudy Gobertish stuff happening with Aiton now, too, where he's being asked to cover when Dallas goes five out with a small lineup with no Powell. Aiton's stuck kind of defending in the corner, and he's helping on some of the Luka drives, and then he comes off the corner, and then you have, you know, Brunson hit a huge three in game four. Finney Smith, who went from 30% from three his first three years of his career, is now 39% over the last three years of his career. He's been terrific. But the the problem with the Rudy stuff was that then you don't do anything on offense, and Aiton is clearly much better on offense, but they don't really want to use him. Which whenever I look at a post advantage, disadvantage, then I always kind of stop myself and go, yeah, what are they going to do? Play post basketball now all of a sudden in 2022? Like that's not going to happen. But there may have to be more of an emphasis put on making eight and have them pay. Uh, the other part of this is Kleba does hold up uh, more defensively than people would probably ever admit. But much like Paul having Bullock just work him at the start of game three in that first half, Bullock was terrific. They're very focused on him. It reminds me a bit of the Tatum thing 
where Tatum knew going into the Wesley Matthews matchup the second time around. Like, okay, all right, I know what he's doing. I'd expect Paul, I'd be shocked if he wasn't just a little bit more aware and getting his momentum going. And if Dallas is going to meet them immediately, bring the ball over, you know, they have to they have to adjust to that a little bit. So I still like Phoenix. I think they're the better basketball team. And do you really want to doubt Chris Paul or me after fouling out of game four and having the family harass slash maybe just offered a hug? I don't. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Raja Bell joins us, former NBA player, also co-host of The Real Ones, Logan Murdoch, uh, late last night. Yeah. So let me, let, me, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a game that mattered like Memphis' game four? And, you know, if Dylan Brooks is your guy, it's different than Dylan Brooks not being your guy. But w- would you ever say anything? <laughs> like, hey, man, what's up? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> are, we ta- are we talking about the... We talk about the shot selection, the overall, just, just yeah, yeah. I need to, yeah, I, hey man, I, you know, I, I say this to Logan a lot when you wind up with teams with guys in and around the same stages of career. Um, some, your better players at times aren't your alpha personalities all the time. And so that's a real tough spot when you have John Morant out, you clearly need that game and it just looked like you had multiple people wrestling for who was going to be the guy. And it, they stepped all over each other's toes. There were possessions down the stretch. Um, with no passes, you're just two between the legs or whatever little combo you have into a contested three. For a team that's won that many basketball games um, and that many without John Morant, those possessions are just too loose and too untimely for playoff basketball. It just you, it was too much to overcome, and they had to win that game. Like they they got a poor performance at a Golden State. They had to win it. Yeah, that's going to be the most frustrating part of it because like the whole time I'm going, when's the Golden State run happening? When's it happening? And it's still, I mean, it kind of happened, but not really. I mean, their first lead was less than a minute to go. Uh, does it ha- like that was always the Doc Rivers thing, which I've referenced numerous times. But Doc would always say, I'd rather you just have your players because then our guys buy in a little bit. Uh, everybody missed shots last night, but it, was there anything that's maybe concerning for Golden State to you after these four games where you try to think about them against Phoenix or Dallas? Yeah, I, you know, their style of play is, is it's, it lends itself to being kind of erratic, right? Because they're moving so fast, the ball's moving so fast. So much of it is based on on the just these reads out of split actions and kind of a motion space type of game. But they've been really loose with the ball. Um you know, I don't really worry about them making and missing shots. I think they have enough in, in Clay, Jordan, Poole, and Steph. But I do worry about their their turnovers at times. Um, when teams can really get into them and the refs are allowing that to be kind of physical, they seem to get really loose with the ball. And what they have going for them amongst other things, but probably first and foremost in my mind right now, is I don't think anybody in the West looks really good. So, you know, maybe you can afford to be kind of loose and not I wouldn't say they're playing their A-plus game right now, but maybe they can afford that. All right, so you don't even think Phoenix or Dallas look good? 
or is it just because you expect more of Phoenix and now they're two, two? I, you know. Yeah, I, I think they, I mean, clearly they're a really good team. Like I picked Phoenix to come out. Dallas, Dallas has probably looked in terms of what your ceiling is in my estimation. I think Dallas has looked closer to their ceiling or, or to their potential maybe than, than Golden State and Phoenix over the course of the playoffs. I think Phoenix has another gear. I, you know, I boil Phoenix down to two bad games from Chris Paul. I mean, I'm sure there's more to it. The Mavs are, I don't mean to take any credit away from them in terms of what they're doing. And when they get that ball humming around the perimeter and they're knocking down threes, they're tough to guard. But, you know, Phoenix without Chris Paul playing well, there's a hole there. And they just, they haven't looked in sync. That And so that's kind of what I'm talking about. I don't think they look bad. They just don't look like they're, they're firing on all cylinders right now. The more I watch Aiton, you know, at first I just think it's a Sarver thing where it's like, okay, they didn't want to pay him. They didn't want to pay him earlier than they had to, which is kind of a weird thing with the CBA anyway, where Denver loses out on the Michael Porter Jr. thing by feeling like, hey, we have to extend you because it's the way we're going to extend you. So he's going to be a restricted free agent. The cap space that's out there are teams that it's like, would the Pistons, the Spurs, maybe somebody just would use the cap space, uh, the Pacers or whatever, and then Phoenix can just go ahead and match it. But then sometimes I just wonder, could it be that Phoenix doesn't think he's as good as maybe we think from the outside? And I, like, I'm not trying to turn this into anti Aiton, but I wonder if it's more about a basketball decision than it was just the financial schedule of an owner that's historically cheap. It's a good, it's a good question. I would like to think, um, you know, that the James James Jones would have the ability to talk to Robert Sarver in a way that maybe other GMs haven't just, you know, haven't played there, haven't won the amount of rings he's won. He's a sharp dude, man. I don't know if you know Jupes, but he's a sharp guy. I, and so all of, I say all of that to say that you may be right. It, it may have something to do with their belief about who DeAndre Ayton is as a basketball player. I tend to believe um, just from experience that it has to do with the, with the latter of your two, the Robert Sarver and being the, you know, historically cheap owner. But in either case, I think DeAndre Ayton is is kind of playing a role there. And I think there's growth left in his game uh, where if you paid him and you didn't think right now he was the type of player that would command that, I think he's got room to grow as a player. But I think he plays a role for them that's critical to their success. So, you know, it's one of those things. Sometimes we as players, it happens to all of us. It certainly happened to me as you sign up to play in a place um, and the role that they're asking you to play, although it can be very rewarding and you can become known for that, it takes away your upward kind of mobility as a player, your growth, right? You're put into this pot and the roots stop growing. What would you do with Luca? In terms of um, putting pieces to, around him or, or guarding him? or <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess there's a lot of layers to this answer. Like, okay, what if you get tasked with him, okay, like, what would you do? And I know every defensive guy with your background would try to say, like, you know, like, I actually know you well enough to know. I think I know what the answer is, so I should just shut up here. But there'll be a lot of guys be like, oh, well, I would just do this as if, like, there's this magic way yeah. to defend him that nobody else has thought of. So just start with him first, and we'll talk team. Yeah, he's. it's a really good question because he's so big. I was going through Carline this morning with my son uh, and my son's school, and one of the one of the security guards who I'm really cool with was like, put your window down, put your window down. And I said, hey, what's up, man? It's like it's like seven in the morning. I'm like, what's up? I got my pajamas on. He's like, hey, who played bully ball when you played in the NBA? Just a random who played bully ball at 7 a.m. And I was like, oh man, I don't know. Carmelo, maybe. And so when you asked me that, I think I think a Luca 
in terms of what he's capable of physically and how big he is for for a two guard or one of these smaller wings in the NBA today. So, you know, um, I would do my best to keep Luca out of that back down situation. Um, I would change depths at which I guard him, like almost if you're a boxer, you know, you're in the strike zone, you're kind of out of the strike zone. I'm trying to bait Luca into shooting jump shots, man, is the best way I can put it. Um, hopefully I can get him to shoot contested deep threes. And I know he kind of seems to shoot those maybe at a higher clip, like when you're actually guarding him and he's got to fade a little bit and knock it down than he does just regular threes. But that's what I would try to do to him. And if I were, if I were, you know, instructing the rest of my teammates, I would tell them to stay home. I would say, look, let him let, if he gets me down there and he's working me, let him, let him go ahead and, and, and make the three pivots. Cause I don't really know that he can go by me like with the shoulders, but let him make the three pivots, bump me and hit those tough ass mid range shots with my hand up. I don't want to give him the 30 and then let, you know, Bertans get cooking and let, uh, you know, uh, Finney Smith get cooking, then let Kleba get cooking. So let him have his way. I'll do my best. And then let's cut off the rest of the pipeline. So you're saying don't help off. Like, don't help. Don't help me. Don't help me. And we we employed that sometimes with Kobe, um, especially when Mike knew, and you could tell in Kobe's eyes that Kobe was out for my blood. And, you know, when, when we could get him in that mode where he was seeing red, then there would be times... There'd be times when he was seeing red where we, they wouldn't help me. And it was, <laughs> it sucked. And then you see me on every Kobe highlight in the, in the world because <laughs> there's very little you could do, but he could score 40 and still lose in that, in that world. But if you gave him 30 and everyone else was able to get 15, you couldn't get in, you couldn't beat him. Yeah. I have always loved that series. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is about that series. Oh, you know what? Why why I love that series so much is because I had to do. I think it was like the first writing assignment I did for ESPN, and so it's 2006. It's the seven gamer. Uh, you came back and won. You were down what three one in that one? Yeah. yeah. And you didn't play game six, right? Right. I was suspended. You were suspended. Uh it was it was just such a weird series. So, like, I want to stay on this though. Like, you're down three one. Did you feel good about yourselves? Like, did you feel good about everything that's happening? Are we talking major adjustments? Because all of us would be like, "Oh, why don't they do this? Try this. Try this." I like throw out cons. I'm not sure if any of them necessarily are going to work. Like, sometimes right. you just aren't as good, or that guy has a really good matchup, and you're just going to see it for however many games it takes for them to win the series. But how did you feel about yourselves as a team when you were down three one to that Lakers team? We were surprisingly confident, I guess, being down 3-1 in retrospect. Um, didn't, didn't think we needed to reinvent the wheel. I, I, would, I would probably throw in a little bit of, you know, being scared. Like, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's not like a daunting task and you're not like, golly, we've, we've, we've possibly fumbled the bag here. But there was some of that. But overall, I think we felt like we hadn't played great. We had not really hit our stride for whatever reason in that first series. And I think part of it, I tell this story, you know, I've, well, I've told it before, is we, we went out to LA, stayed at a different hotel um, than we normally do. We were at the Lowe's out in Santa Monica, just had a different vibe. Families went out with us. It was almost like 
it was almost like a little mini holiday. And they put they put it on us real quick. Boom, down three one. But we just we just said, hey, we gotta play better. And we can play better and we need one. And that's that was really just the approach. Like as soon as if we can get one, as crazy as this sounds, being down three two, all pressure flips to to LA. Cause even going down there three two, where they're in their minds, you know, they might be saying, Hey, the all we got to do is win it. But there's a lot of pressure associated with having to close us out. Cause if it goes seven now, they fumbled the bag. So let's get one, let's stay in it, and let's just do what we do. And our answer to a lot of things was always to play faster. You know, like, like let's just get it moving. Let's get up and down. Let's get some threes up. And um, and that's kind of where we were. Yeah, because another thing that we were like, hey, was there this speech? You know, was was there one guy that did this? I'm sure it's happened on different teams, but I don't know. That team, that team had been around for a little bit, you know, not not like, some of the other teams, but there just had to be a confidence in you. Cause when it all said, like when it's all said and done, I was like, well, I thought Phoenix was the better basketball between, between the two teams. And then, you know, at the very end, it, it got even weirder, but it wasn't a thing. It wasn't like, okay, now these are the rules. Like you didn't change your rules in that series. Not, not specifically for that game. Um, in, in to the best of, of my, my memory's capability. I don't believe now we, again, we, we, we employed different strategies on code. Like there were times where, you know, we were going to double him, you know, and there were times where they were just going to let me get roasted. There were times where, you know, Kobe fans don't like to hear this, but there were times where I'd have him under control and you didn't have to help me. You know, there were other times where, you know, maybe we, maybe we come down and put a little bit more pressure if they were, if they were posting. So we employed different strategies throughout the series, throughout games, but there was no philosophical shift for us going into, um, game five at home and I think it was a physical series and again people don't really like to hear this because I know the end result was me doing something really stupid and and everything like that but it was physical there were a lot of elbows being thrown there was a lot of there was a lot of punishment that I think the Lakers felt like if they could dole it out we were a relatively soft team like that was what most people thought was our Achilles heel so you know, in game five, I think we finally stood up in a lot of ways, not just my stupid play, but I think a lot of people just stood up and said, hey, we're not taking that shit anymore. Like, well, let's go. And, and you know, we were able to get out of it. Were there other series then with different teams, whether it was the Philly run to 2001, um, you know, I don't know, maybe a later Phoenix team. You know, I'm, I'm looking through it now in the game logs going, all right, where you felt like, Hey, this isn't working because it's kind of getting back. Like JJ Redick was was tweeting last night. He goes, you know, we played against this team and they just let Dwight go off. To me, letting Dwight go off is far easier to contain and stay like, okay, Orlando's got shooters because they were one of those original kind of like four out with Dwight type teams. But letting Dwight go off to me, like, all right, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, like letting Luca go off, he might score fifty, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Was there another time in another playoff series where you felt like two games in, a coach was like, we have to change everything we're doing? And everything to a point, which is what I assume. Yeah, I remember I remember uh, vividly. It was my first year in the league, uh, and I had only been there for a month and a half, but we had two series like that. The first was Vince Car the Vince Carter series where him and Allen Iverson just went absolutely bananas. It was the graduation series, um, and they lost game seven on our court. Um, but I remember Larry Brown being in practice and I was still young and kind of trying to hover around the coaches so they could see me. 
And so I'd hear a lot of what he was saying. And I remember him just being, this isn't working. We have to figure something out. And a lot of it would, a lot of, a lot of, at that point, his conversation would revolve around whether or not we had someone that could guard him stashed over there on the bench. They weren't desperate enough to try me yet, but he asked me, he was like, Hey, can you guard him? And I'm like, shit. Yeah, let's go. No, no, I didn't get any burn in that series, but we, we had to change some strategies defensively against them. Not only was Vince really, really tough, but, um, what's, what's my man's name, man? What would, he's a Philly kid played at Villanova, big guard. Um, Alvin Williams. Al, he was cooking too. Like we had multiple problems from a defensive standpoint that had to be taken care of. And then the next series, it's how I actually got to play ever in the playoffs was big, big dog was a problem for us. Big, big dog was just an absolute problem. And most people think I came in to guard Ray Allen in that buck series. I didn't, I came in to guard Glenn because he was, he was tough and he was physical and he was just killing us on that mid block. And so we had to, you know, change strategies up midstream with, with them too. It was another seven game series, but, but Larry Brown might've been the best ever. I've never played with the coach who's done this before. We would go from series to series and change offensive sets. We're not running the same stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll keep nuts and bolts, right? Because they're Allen's favorite plays that, that Allen likes, and that's what we're going to kind of do. But he would bring out, boom, we're putting these four, four new plays in for this series. And no one else ever did that. Four new plays, like four new offensive sets that you had. Four shown. new sets. Four new sets. We're, we're, if, if they've scouted us and think we're going to run this, you know, 60% of the time, this, these three actions, well, they've scouted wrong because now we got, you know, I don't know three or four more actions we're going to run. And we're not, we're still running horns and we're still running whatever those were called to get Allen his ISOs and stuff like that. But we just, we change, he'd change it up. He'd come to the drawing board two days before the series would start. And he's like, here we go. We're putting them in. How hard was it? I imagine each team is different. It's based on personnel. How hard is it? Cause are you saying like, Hey, we ran four new sets. Like I think, okay, well, how hard is like in practice, you can't install four things, but I imagine teams are very different. And some teams, like you come out of the timeout thinking everybody knows what you're doing. And you're like, all right, two guys completely don't know what we're doing. And then other teams can pick it right up. How frustrating is that? Because I imagine it's both of those things. Um, extremely frustrating. I, I, I deal with a lot of youth basketball players now, and I find myself reflecting on that because, you know, a lot of times they're standing over there and they got these short attention spans. Now they're not paying attention. And when I call them up and it's your turn, no one knows what they're doing. Like they're not watching the people in front of them. And I, I remember um, coming into the league and, and calling my dad and saying to him when he would ask, how, hey, how's it going? How are, how are you doing? And I'd be like, well, I don't really know how I'm playing. Like I can't really gauge that. But I do know that a lot of players here can't remember anything. And... <laughs> And, you know, like I keep getting up because and, and no bullshit, like I would get extra reps in different training camps because people at my position trying out just couldn't retain what happened. So, you know, I'm getting three reps to your one because you got to watch me again to figure it out. And so it worked to my benefit in a lot of instances. Uh, Charlotte was a place where it smacked me in the face. I had come from Phoenix where we had a pretty cerebral team and we had a bunch of guys who knew how to play. Um, and it could have been that our sets were more wide open, but there were some intricacies to some of what we did. I got to Charlotte, and I remember some talented players, and it just, you know, and La again, Larry Brown, right, who I would have never thought would have traded for me again. I thought he hated me with a passion, but lo and behold, here I am in Charlotte, 
And he is the guy who will throw a bunch of stuff at you. And we got multiple people that just, it doesn't work like that. They just can't grasp it on the fly. And so, you know, it, it becomes challenging for, for teams like that. For coaches, I'm sure Larry had to feel like he was pulling his hair out at times because, you know, you had to really stick with something for three and four weeks for people to get comfortable with it. And right, and installing a set too of like, hey, this is the setup and then here are our actions off of it. It's different than just, okay, timeout. Here's, can you call a timeout and go, here's the play, guys. Like, what's the trust factor on breaking that huddle if it's a play you haven't run before? Because, I mean, that would be different than the concepts of all yeah. the different things. Coming out of an NBA timeout, like... <laughs> I was going to say, we, in high school, the, the, I had no confidence at all. I've got none. I can't do that. Um, but in the NBA, I think most coaches feel really confident. First of all, the, the, it's their job. You better have the right personnel on the floor. Like, if I look, I'm looking down the line and I see that set of eyes looking at me with the, like, mm-mm. Then no, no, we got to get him out. We can't can't do that. But most guys are going to put you in a situation, even if it's not exactly what you run, there's wrinklage of what you do. So this isn't a completely foreign concept to you, right? Like we'll run a lot of things that you've seen somewhere along the line. Maybe we worked them in training camp and we didn't fully, you know, implement them. And But it's not going to be 1,000% foreign. Okay. By the way, I love the Toronto series story. We're like, yeah, I got this. And you played, I think, less than five minutes in the series. <laughs> okay. Uh, give me, give me your Giannis, uh, your take. Cause I thought they clearly subbed him out cause they were, he was tired, mm-hmm. but the, the bud, the Milwaukee and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say this is not like now all of a sudden I don't think Milwaukee is good, but the doubts we had about the Bucks before the title, I felt crept back into game four where you're going, all right, Drew, maybe as much as we love him, isn't the guy to carry the load. And then Giannis, why are you getting all these favorable switches, getting fouls, you know, hunting the one guard that might be out there to stretch the offense for Boston, and then you don't do any of it for four-plus minutes? That's the stuff with them that drives me crazy. I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm a huge Giannis fan. I just think he's 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 – as dominant of players there is in the league right now. And, and I think he lets people off the hook all the time. I know how crazy that sounds. I think he's so dominant and he's not nearly as dominant as he could be. Um, okay, wait, because the thing is, is his personality is the opposite of that. Like, I feel like for such stretches, like it's, he's going to war and nobody else knows they're in it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So right. that's really weird that you would frame it that way, that you feel like he lets them off the hook when I feel like his personality is the opposite of that for so much of the game. I, you know, I don't know if that's a coach or you're right. If it's Giannis, you go, hey, enough of this shit at two minutes. Like, all right, stack this side and get, you know, we're going to go two man on this side. I don't know. No, I, I, I agree with you. And I've said it. I, I I love Bud. I came up in the pop. I came up my one of my first training camps was was San Antonio, and I got to know those guys really well. And I think Bud's done a great job. But I, I also think we've gotten to a point in the NBA, and I don't mean to come off like old curmudgeon, but I'll say it until I'm blue in the face, where situationally we don't have to play the way we play through 95% of the game. So this wide open Giannis at the top is great. It's what allows him to be who he is. I don't want to strip him of any of that. But I do want to, if teams have kind of figured it out to some degree or if it's problematic tonight or whatever the case may be, I want to help you get in positions where they can't do that to you all the time. And I don't think they do that enough. And I don't know if that's Giannis because I see times where Giannis will clear a board 
and Drew or somebody will be there like clapping for it. Like, you'll give that up. And Giannis is like, nah, I'm the MVP. I'm coming. And so he's pushing it down. And now we're again at the top of the key. Um, you know, a, a big in front of him. It's essentially a one. They play a one, two, two zone when he's standing at the top of the key. There's, there's really nowhere to go. So I, I just feel like they're, first of all, I know he wants to shoot threes. I'm all for ex- ex- stretching your game. The, the mid range looks really good. I've got no problem with it. Every single time he shoots a three, it's a bailout and it's a possession loss for them. It's a, you're giving the other team the ball, right? So I just, I'm not saying don't shoot any, but they're loose possessions with them. Drew Holiday is a number, th- a good, good number three. I think when you put him in that number two role without Chris Middleton on an ISO team, um, the inconsistencies, not that he can't, but there's inconsistencies in that. And so, you know, you saw a bad one last night. He has more possessions than probably any good player in the NBA where I'm scratching my head as to what he was trying to do. Where I'm like, what? It didn't look like it was really in the flow. It looked like he just sawed off the play even before it got started. And now he's on this kind of dribble tangent into the lane. And now we're, we get this wild finish from a 6'5 guard against 6'10. You know, they're just, and they're, they work a lot of the times. But when you don't have the consistency of your number two, it can become erratic. Yeah. And by the way, Boston making shots, when they don't make shots, then it's a free for all because then. You know, Milwaukee can just run into it. But I like some of the pick, pick and pop stuff with almost Drew as the screener and the pop guy. And then it's Giannis and then it's space. And, you know, when Milwaukee is drive and kick, drive and kick, it's a helpless feeling um, because it doesn't always have to be the kick if Giannis feels like he has the advantage and you're going to get into the bonus and you're going to do all these things. And then I'm watching that. And I, I look, I get it. Okay, he was tired. But not it's not like it's just a bunch of rested people out there the whole time too. So it's just very weird. And we know Drew's going to have a really big moment at some point anyway, because he is, he is when he's great. He's, he's really good. He's just taking a ton of shots in this one. Do you have any read on Miami Philly? I really don't. I mean, I, I I have a read on it where it goes from here. I have no idea. I imagine you could tell me what you think about. I imagine Miami has to shoot better than they've shot. I, I mean, they're one of the best shooting teams, if not the best shooting team in the NBA this year. And they've just been awful. Um, now the reasons, you know, Joel's a better defender than people give him credit for. Like he's really anchoring, you know, when you have an anchor behind you, when Dikembe Batumbo is behind me, I can take two steps closer to you. So you don't have the space. Two steps is a lot for a shooter. You know, it changes the math on what you can get off. Um, he's also created a ton on the offensive end. I, I think Miami wins tonight, but honestly, I, I could see a seven game series and I could see Philly winning or I, I I really don't know, man. That's a terrible answer. I don't know. No, that's my answer, though. I don't know. Like, I still think Phoenix is better. I thought Golden State would win that series. Uh, Without Middleton, I thought if Boston fit the profile of kind of what we bought into, they should win that series. And then even in game four, I'm like, I think they're going to lose the series. So that one I'm not as sure on. Uh, But Philly, Miami, I have... I have no feel. And, you know, let's stay on that. Because one of the... I don't want to turn this into the Jokic and Bede thing again, because there's plenty of that. But Jokic's defensive stats, as I said throughout the entire time, even though I voted for him for MVP, were ridiculous because it showed that he had these incredible defensive metrics where when you watch the Golden State series, there wasn't one guy on a drive that worried about Jokic being in there. There just wasn't. Mm -hmm. When you see Embiid and where these stats can be misleading is that now (laughs) like you go in and you're like, oh, there's that guy. I'm going to go do something else. And it doesn't have to even be a contest. You know, sometimes against the drop, I thought Miami was attacking him in that drop. But then there's other times where you feel like you have a cutter. All that stuff now that was 
wasn't even a thought in game one and two. That thought exists. And that should probably be enough to swing this back to Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I am with you 1,000%. There is a, it is just a deterrent when you have a big, capable body in the middle of that, right? He's not a stiff. He can move. He, he's got, hey, you saw he stripped like three people. You know, as a big, you don't normally see bigs getting their hands down in people's shooting pockets on that drop coverage and, and getting steals. Like that's just creating a little doubt in your mind, just enough. And so here's what I do know, right? Let me buy just to I, I make this pretty succinct. If with Joel Embiid present, he's going to give you what he gives you. It's only, it's only getting better. He's not going backwards, right? Right. If James Harden, he doesn't have to do 31. It doesn't have to be what it was. But if James Harden is looking more aggressive and he's mid-20s with eight or nine assists, Philly wins the series. He doesn't have to be 31. He's give you 25, 24, but aggressive, shooting the three ball a little bit. And Joel Embiid is doing his thing. I think that's enough to swing that in, in, my, in Philly's favor. And the other thing that Bill and I were talking about on Sunday, too, like, I think at times I'd made the mistake of going like, oh, Harden will make Embiid's life easier. And what we realized, I think, in this series is that Harden getting trapped and not really having a plan, I thought in those first couple of games, like, that stuff drives me crazy. It's like you're the best player. You know you're going to get trapped. You know Miami's going to throw you different things. You know they're going to get aggressive as the game goes later. Like, be ready. Be ready for it. And I don't think Harden was really even ready for it. And now it's like, okay, well, we can't actually sell out and do this stuff because we're shading towards Embiid all the time. And that maybe unlocks Harden and maybe unlocks the version of Philly that we all wonder if they're capable of, you know? Because yeah. it's really weird after two games to go, man, what's their offseason going to be like to, could this team be in the <laughs> NBA Finals? Right, right. It changes, <laughs> he changes the math is the best way I can put it. I mean, there's this, there's this geometric equation of of space and angles and 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 uh, um, you know areas on the floor that people want to operate in offensively, and without Joel Embiid in the middle of that, we we dictate what your angles are going to look like, the space on the floor, how much time I'm going to give you. We've just changed that geometric equation on you, and it's really it's kind of it's kind of dope because when we change it, even fractionally, man, it throws people off. Now, the best in the world operate in those spaces anyway, right? But, you know, you're talking about James Harden, who may not be the best in the world anymore. And you're talking about Tobias Harris, who's a really nice player. Maxie, who's really nice, but they're not the best in the world. And so you've changed that math on them. People get uncomfortable. They get out of their, their element. And you're able to kind of, you know, dictate terms. And, and now we're winning games. You drop Joel Embiid right in the middle of that. And the math is right back where the Sixers want it. It's right back. We can't run that double at you. You know, there's, there's, there are these... There are these anchors that hold our bigs one second longer, you know, to to a viable scoring threat that allows other people to get on top of the rim. Now we have to, I'm talking about two steps closer to Embiid when Embiid goes to work, that's going to spring a jump shooter, right? Like those are big, big changes in a series that don't look like much to the naked eye. Thanks, Raja. Appreciate it, man. Enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Royal Caribbean. What are you going to do for your next vacation? Beach, island hopping, hiking, a little culture? Choose Royal Caribbean and you can go on all the vacations at once. That's the point. You want to go to Greece? How about they get you there? Everywhere else. I've looked at the Alaska packages. Alaska Inside Package, Alaska Experience Cruise, Vancouver Round Trip, one way out of Seattle. They have it all. They make it easier for you with adventure at every stop. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. 
Visit RoyalCaribbean.com to learn more. So Nikki Glazer's coming up. Uh, she's a terrific stand-up comedian. She's hilarious. And she's also very graphic. So this is just a heads up. If that's not really your thing, if you're not into that, it offends you, it bothers you, um, then this is your warning for it. Because we don't normally do stuff like this in the podcast, but we got a chance to have her on. We're all fans. And like I said, not everybody is for everybody. So maybe if she's not for you, then it may not be for you. But I'm just telling you now. We're excited when we got this booking, I don't know, maybe over a month ago, we got Nikki Glazer here with us, who I think is hilarious. Uh, I, I actually watched the first pilot of the show on E!, which we're going to get to. Welcome home, Nikki Glazer, back in St. Louis. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about a couple of the stand-up routines that I've seen you do, because what I love about what you do is that you're a storyteller, and then you'll have something happen, and I imagine it kind of like pops your head, like, hey, do I have something here? When you talked about the first boyfriend that said, I love you, and he just got drunk all the time, and then you tricked him. Yeah. Like, do you know what you said last night? How real is that story? It's a hundred percent real. I mean, I really I was so desperate for, you know, I, I used to just date all these guys who didn't have the capability of loving me, let alone like anyone, you know, not just me, but that guy um got so wasted all the time. <laughs> And I grew up with a mom who uh, would black out drunk. And as a child, I learned like you can say anything to your mom when she's in that state of mind or wherever she's starts slurring like that. And then the next day, you, carte blanche, like you don't have to be accountable for anything. So I used to just be like, mom, I fucking hate you. You're disgust. Like I used to say, I, like all the cuss words, mom, I smoked pot the, last night. Mom, I, I'm going to sneak your alcohol. Like I used to tell her all the secrets, everything I wanted to say. And then the next morning it was just like, it didn't happen. So I, I knew like the, the glory of a blackout drunk and how much you could get away with. And so, yeah, I, I found a way to tell him the next day after he was hung over after a really bad blackout on Valentine's Day where I had been waiting for him to say I love you all night long and he didn't. Um, so I just told him the next day that he had said it when he was drunk just to see if he would, you know, go with it. And he definitely was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> I, like, he was just like, no, I wouldn't have done that even when I was wasted. I'm like, oh, oh, so he, he actually right. said, that, no, I didn't do that. He knew. He knew yeah, I mean, I forget know. what the joke was. He kind of knew. He was just like, um, I... I did, like he. I remember him being like, "I did," like being very mystified by he would why he would ever say that. Which I don't. I'm a, a blackout drunk as well, and whenever someone tells me I do anything blackout, I totally am just like, "Yeah, I probably did that." I don't know. I have no control over that person. I don't know who she is. She says really awful things. She tells people she loves them when she doesn't. I mean, that was my go-to move when I blacked out when I drank was I would just like make plans with people I hated and tell them I love you so much you know like so I just thought it would work for him but he was like no I wouldn't even say that in a blackout yeah I don't um, even know if you have to be blacked out if you're making plans like there's plenty of things you're like oh that's God. a great idea like walk it's to so Asia weird yes uh, antiquing yeah. tomorrow at 8 a.m let's do it I've always wanted to like so many dumb plans so many um yeah, the first time I got drunk in high school, I just remember being like, why did I tell that girl last night I loved her? And like, I want to be close to friends. I literally hate her. It was the opposite. It's just a very bizarre thing I notice I do. And that's why I don't date and blackout drunks anymore. So when you are, you know, I know this is a little weird because, but you share it with everybody, you know, because then it's also in the TV show, this kind of yeah. on again, off again relationship thing. Do mm -hmm. you, do you meet people where you'll be like, all right, I don't really like this person, but this is a great joke. And this is a great bit. Um, no, I mean, like I will in maybe sometimes encourage ridiculous things 
in my life that are happening um, to continue happening until I'm in a place where I'm so uncomfortable, like I- I'm feeling violated just to like play it out to see, oh, okay, where can this story go? I found like early on in my life when I would have like really awkward sexual encounters where I felt like, oh, I don't even want to be here. This sucks. Just start making it your own and getting a story out of it for you. Like I used to like wink at myself in mirrors when I would feel like really sad and alone when I was with a guy that like clearly didn't like me and was doing something disgusting that I was just like, oh God, what am I even doing? I used to like find a way to like make the joke with myself. So, um, but when it comes to the wait, reality wait. show, you would yeah. wink at yourself yeah. like you were on a TV show that you're not even on. Yeah. Almost like Jim from the office. Like, but it was, it wasn't like I was on a TV show. It was like, if this isn't for, I'm getting nothing out of this pleasure wise. I don't like, I don't like this guy anymore. I know this guy is incapable of like liking, liking me the way I wish he would. I'll, I mean, so often people find themselves in the middle of like sexual encounters where it's not like, I don't want to make this paint this like it sounds like I'm being like violated and I'm like, I hate this and stuff. But it's like, you're just like, wow, I thought this guy was going to be my boyfriend and he's saying really weird things. And he's just like, our sexual chemistry is off. He's not even giving a fuck if I come. Like, I can't even do, I can't do anything with this. This will never happen again. And instead of those moments going to a dark place of shame and like, why am I here? Why do I keep falling for these guys? What am I doing? I just go like, okay, just start remembering details. You know, stories for my friends. It started out as like, I got to tell my friends about this guy I gave a hand job to in a bathroom and uh, that he had tried to have sex with me and he didn't let me move because he was scared he was going to come. So we were like soaking like Mormons. Like I remember so many details from all my sexual encounters because first of all, I wasn't horny at all. So my brain was working perfectly there. You know, when you get horny, your brain stops like functioning, like you get really dumb. But if you're a woman who is like, the guy's just like takes his dick out right after you make out for two seconds. And you're just kind of like, he starts doing that breathing. That's like, <sighs> like you're like, the ghost just passed through you. Why are you shivering? Like that kind when a guy goes dead in the eyes and gets horny, women were just like thinking about like, is he going to hate my body? Like what am I, do I have spray tan on my underwear that he's going to think is shit? Like all these thoughts are roiling around and we are not wet at all. And we're worried about not being wet. Like we have so many thoughts that I just, um, I tend to like overthink things in those circumstances and, um, and yeah, and use them later on in comedy. And, you know, it's like, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, because, uh, most like a lot of men tend to think that like female comics, like, oh, they talk about is sex. Like, why don't like, that's just all you see underneath any Instagram photo of a female comic on some platform that isn't their own or some account is just men saying, oh, does she, well, let me guess, it ends in her vagina, vagina, vagina. And it's just like, yeah, I talk about that stuff because honestly, I was like, I talk about sex because I was scared of it my whole life. I didn't have sex till I was like 21. I didn't have consensual sex till I was like 25. Like, I didn't know. I was just, I talk about it now because I'm, I think it's just interesting. Not because I'm like, it's so easy and it's like all I can talk about. But it is easy for me, I will say that. But I also don't understand that argument when people are like, dirty comics are so, it's easy. It's like, why do you do, why do you want me to do something hard? Don't you want to see people who you are talented do the thing that's easy for them? Do you want to go see Paul McCartney play badminton? Like, what? of course, it should be easy. Like, is it easy for you to talk about your dick? No. In, in front of thousands of people? No. That actually might be a talent. So, um, but yeah, that's why I talk about sex because I'm scared of it and I want it. <laughs> so before I knew more about, you know, the family dynamic because I hadn't watched the show. So yeah. Like, all right. So I watched the first episode and 
and I think this is probably a layup question you've been asked a million times, is that like, I remember, okay, the first time I was ever on air, my father was listening. He was so excited. It was like 20 years ago. Right. And then yeah. he would listen every single day. And my mother was like, he's so excited. Like plans your yeah. day around it. He gets up early, listens to the radio. And then because my name is spelled R-Y-E-N instead of A-N, because my parents yeah. just want to do something weird. I had said something about it. Like somebody called in and made fun of me. Like, hey, loser, how can you spell your name wrong? And I was like, well, look, I didn't have a vote. You know, like when they hit it, you're, you know, <laughs> you're not really involved. A lot of kids aren't involved in that process. That's such a good point. When you right. get bullied for your name, it's like, I didn't choose this. Yeah, this yeah. was not like, well, hold on, guys. So I just said, you know, they were trying to do something a little different. And then I, I think I did like a hippie voice for my dad. I was like, hey, let's throw an E in there or something. Yeah. And then, and then I got a call that day oh my God. and he's like i had no idea you've been an apologist for your name your entire life and i was like all oh right we need to fucking calm down i was like we need oh to calm down i'm like you're going to be listening to me on the air every day and by the way i'm talking sports we don't cover sex a ton on this podcast right. so now that i see the dynamic with your parents who are hilarious and the relationship you have with your mother like i went from wanting to ask you like at what point do you desensitize your family to like hey i'm just letting it fly to now that yeah. i saw the first episode i'm like actually now i totally get it so the question feels irrelevant oh uh, it's still a, it's still a good question because i still struggle with it to be honest with you like uh, of where the line is um how much i think about them when they are uh, i know they're going to hear something cuz i i have the same thing i've really supportive parents who watch everything I do, they'll be listening to this. Like they consume everything. It's like a full-time job at this point. <laughs> and it's, um, and it means so much to me that they do. Like, I think that's why I, I don't know about you. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do when my dad dies. I, I, the validation I get from him being like, you were so great on that. Like just the littlest things I do. It's like, it really feels like having an, you know, bringing home an art project from school and being like, look what I did. And it's like disgusting. And they hang it, you know, they frame it. Like i I thrive on that validation. And it's weird because I talk about stuff that my dad does not want to hear about, but he still celebrates me. My mom can not, like, I think blacks out during my set because she can never remember anything that I did that she liked or, um, and I get that. My dad says that after performances that he watches of me, if he'll go to a live show, people come up to him afterwards and are like, are you okay, man? Like he was at my funeral. Like he, like, like, do you need us to bring buy some food tomorrow? Like, are you going to be okay? Like he, because it's so disgusting. The things I talk about, I, I struggle with, I just don't have a filter and um, I have some type of autism that makes it. So I just don't care about talking about eating ass while my dad is still alive on this planet, like publicly, like, you know, like I just, and it's not because I'm like, I want to challenge you, dad, make you uncomfortable. I really do relate to porn stars in the way of like, you know, this is a thing I do. I don't have shame about it. I'm good at it. I, I not everyone can do it. You know, you can shame porn stars all you want, but like, are you fucking on camera? No, there's some bravery involved in that. There's something that they have that you don't. And you might argue, yes, abuse as a child, but whatever, that's what makes us who we are is trauma. So yes, I have whatever trauma or like neurodivergence that makes it so I just say things that people are like what are you doing um and I have to remember like I think a lot of people with autism like I'm not saying I have autism although I was diagnosed by my dentist at the age of nine um I think that I have with to autism remember by your dentist yeah my dentist just one day I, I, I was like wearing a hobby that, like, of lead. his yeah <laughs> 
He thought I was like already diagnosed because I was talking about that lead vest that they put on you when they x-ray you. And I was just like trying to make small talk. And I was like, I love this. It feels so good. It's my favorite thing. I love going to the dentist. I wish I could take this home. And he was like, yeah, a lot of autistic children respond to it that way, Nikki. That's really nice. And I didn't know what that word was. I was psyched to hear that I was something because I was a weird kid that had all these sensory issues and just anxieties and I was just weird. Like I was dying for a diagnosis so that it wouldn't be my fault. I was, you know, like your name, like it's not my fault. My dad gave it to me. Don't be mad at me. But everything about me when I was young felt like no one else in our family is like this. She's just weird. So I was excited. I asked my mom, I was like, Dr. Wormeister said I'm autistic. And she, um, she didn't look into it. So, but I, I do think that I have to remember other people aren't comfortable with this stuff. Be mindful of that because I just assume everyone feels the same way I do about stuff and is as comfortable. And it's really a struggle. Honestly, um, I look back on all my relationships and I'm like, I have to hold on to this man that I found in my life who doesn't seem to care that I talk this way on stage because it's a lot of guys are like, I'd love to date you because I talk so freely about sex. And I, it seems like I'm a very sexual person. I think men maybe are like, oh, I'd like to fuck you. But being in a relationship with someone who talks freely about their personal sex life and says really gross things and your parents are still alive and you want to like, present this person to them, that's like a that's a hard thing to deal with. And I, I just watched my reality show and I remember just saying to the guy that I'm dating, like, thank you for loving that girl because that is, a, oh, Jesus Christ. I finally get it. I used to think I was a catch. Now I realize I'm a fucking catch and release like I am not I am not I'm I'm a lot Joe Rogan told me that one time on his podcast he was like you're a lot and I was very offended like in the moment because I'm like what does that mean and now I get it I'm just I'm a lot I'm exhausting um but I have a lot of funny people around me so thank god for that on this reality show I can kind of sit back and let them be funny yeah because I'd always think like, all right, all right, you get your reality, you know, like it's pitched to you. Okay. The producer's like, hey, we're going to do this. And then it's like, okay, well, what if I don't like doing a lot of stuff? You know, like, like, okay, we're going to be, yeah. like, you're going to be rollerblading, which was the first episode. It was like, okay, it looks like you and your boyfriend were really yes. like rollerblading. So, all right, this makes sense. But your mother mm -hmm. is hilarious. And so when you go yeah. back home, you know, I and imagine as a comedian and it's a reality show, you're like, oh, I better, like, do I have any zingers with me today? Like, I have to. I, I know why mm -hmm. I have the show is that I also have to be kind of funny and maybe make fun of some of these different things, but it's also your hometown. So I feel like there's a little bit more to the dynamic of I'm famous. I'm this successful comedian. You know, I'm just going to be on camera, but I don't know. It's almost like they're trying to tell a little bit more of a story, which maybe gives yes. you a better foundation for the show than just, Hey, it's all on Nikki to be cracking us up every five minutes. Yes. Cause I, you know, I, I created the show. I was living in St. Louis. I still live there. It's so funny. People in the industry, because we know that everything is fake. You know, like everyone in media is just like, okay, what you, someone pitched this to you. Did you have to move back just for the show? And it's so funny. A lot of interviews I do afterwards, they're like, so where are you living now? And I go, St. Louis. And they're like, Oh, I thought that was just, that's just for the show though. And I'm like, no, that's what I thought. Real. That, that's yeah, how I started. No, so that's I mean, because I'm we know we, every single person thinks that I would too, because every, we know that everything's fake, especially on reality TV. But this, this show I wanted to do because I was like, I'm tired of working hard. You know, like that's why I like podcasts. That's why I like stand up. That's why I like reality TV. No scripts to learn, no jokes to write. You just live and it's an interesting enough. You just get on, you talk and it's just, that's enough. And then, you know, the editors are what they're responsible for making it funny. Like, I'm just going to live. And and yeah, there were some times where I 
I had to do things I didn't want to do for sure. I mean, that's what reality TV is. For me, it's all fake situations, but the emotions within them are real because these people, me, my parents, my friends, we're not good enough actors to like do lines or like have them go like, you need to be in a fight. So you just, have, yeah, I have to go rollerblading with the guy I'm dating. Would I do that normally? Fuck no. Do I go canoeing with my dad? Would I do that? No, I would be napping usually during the week when I'm not on the road. So it was, there's a lot of situations. I compare it to the zoo when people are like, reality TV is fake. I'm like, well, do you go to the zoo and you go, this is fake. It's like, no, yes, these habitats are fake, but the animals within them are operating the way they would in this situation. So I, I'm the host of F Boy Island on HBO Max. And I, I learned through watching that process of, okay, Reality shows are actually real. Like these people are falling in fucking love fast and just the way that you or I would in real life. But it is sped up because if you if you have a situation where all the people are doing all day, if I gave you, if I put you in, on an island and the only people you interacted with were the girls that you were dating and the other guys that were dating the girls you're dating and every producer you talked to, every person you ever talked to was talking to you about the people you're dating and who you like and that guy likes you and you didn't have a phone, you couldn't talk to your parents, you couldn't talk to your friends, every meal you eat is in between scenes where you're talking about dating, you will fall in love so fucking fast. It is a pressure cooker and it, and it, people's emotion, you know, you see these people want to get engaged at the end of a three week period. I used to roll my eyes at it. And now I absolutely understand. It's just speeding up the treadmill of life. Like these, these producers know exactly how to make people truly fall in love. Like uh, there were times on F Boy Island where I was just like, there's no fucking way that she likes him this much. And I was secretly like, this is all bullshit. And then an, one episode later, I'm crying at the you know, wrote whatever, our, you know, our finale or our uh, elimination ceremony. Cause I'm like, you guys are meant to be like, I could feel the love. Like it was, it's real. So that's why I, I came up with the idea for this show. I was like, oh, I just, I kind of want to do more interesting things. I want to date more people. I was single at the time when I pitched it and I really struggled dating. I just feel so nervous one-on-one -on -one with a guy and like new guys. That's like why I keep going back to my ex. I just like, I I already know him. I, the sex is like predictable. Like I get scared of sex, intimacy and all these things. And I go, okay, maybe if I do a reality show for the sake of entertainment, I can do anything if there's a camera on me and not because I'm like, look at me, but it's just, there's something that makes it not so indulgent because I'm like, well, it's for the sake of entertainment. I'm not just like, I don't know. I can just do, I was on Dancing with the Stars. Like I wouldn't, I don't dance at weddings. Like the fact that I dance live on TV is insane, but I did it because there was some kind of pressure of television. So I wanted to do this show so I could find a fucking husband. But then by the time the um, show started filming, I was, you know, a year after I pitched it, I was seeing someone and he did not want to be on camera. Um, but I was like, okay, well, I can date you off camera, but I'm, I'm definitely dating on camera and I'm going to actually try to find someone. I'm not going to fake it. And he'd, he was like, well, okay, well then I'll, I'll be on camera. Everyone on the show does not want to be on this show. That's another thing about this reality show. It's the only reality show on TV where no one wants to be famous except me and my roommate, Andrew, because we're in the business. Like everyone else had to be coerced. And there's something refreshing about that because they're not actors. They... They are themselves on camera because they don't they don't even know how to fake it. They don't even know what that would look like. So it's there's something nice about that. That's uh that's a funny summary. And you could say that, <laughs> you know, the things that you like, you actually do decorate your place goodwill. In the beginning of that episode, it was like, I yep. don't know if she's gonna be into this. And then it's like, no, wait, a couple of those pillows actually make sense. Yeah. And, I, my room and here we go. I wear stuff from Goodwill. I was just watching my show last night and I'm like, 
every shirt I'm wearing in my like interviews was from Goodwill. Like I do, I, I made sure because I just like hate when we lump any kind of perfection onto celebrities. And I was starting to get a lot of like, oh my God, you're so beautiful and perfect. I mean, this is from me appearing on TV where I have fake hair and fake eyelashes and fake tan and girls just being like, oh my God, I want your skin. I want your legs. You're so happy. And I mean, I would be on my own Instagram sometimes when I was depressed just to like look at back at my life and I'd start getting jealous of myself. Like God, she has it all. <laughs> when I knew the truth that I didn't have it all. I was very depressed a lot of times. I'm anxious. I have bad, self, low self-esteem. I have days where I just like look in the mirror and I'm like, I look four months pregnant or I look, I look like, you know, I look like a man a lot of times. And like, there's times where I just like hate the, who I am. And, um, and I wanted to make sure that's when I was like, I got to do a reality show because people need to know the truth. I'm so tired of celebrities being like put on this pedestal to make everyone feel fucking bad about themselves, like men and women. It's just not just a women thing anymore where we compare ourselves like everyone's so goddamn fake. And then it's even worse because everyone goes, this is the real me. And it's like them with like a, out makeup and they just look a little bit like less done up. And they're like, this is my real skin. You're like, no, you have tattooed eyebrows. You are incapable of being yourself without makeup because you tattooed your face. You've tinted moisturizer on. You like this whole like, I'm real and like hugging, their, like putting their cellulite, like scrunching it up and being like, this is the real me. But their like apartment is beautiful and spotless. Like there's always something in it that's like, but this part of my life is perfect. And I'm a real, I look like faces of meth in some of these scenes that are on my show. Like I look rough. And I think I'm taking the place of the Kardashians. We fucking need that. I'm tired of seeing reality shows where it's like, this is the real us. And it's just not, it's the soft lighting. They had four hours of hair and makeup to go do a scene where they go to a farmer's market. I mean, this is, it's all, it's all fucking bullshit. I'm tired of it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my goal is just to like, just be honest, I guess. And, um, and I just like, I hate, <laughs> I hate celebrity. I just think. No, wait, what? I really do. I fucking hate, I hate celebrities. I think I hate the Met Gala. I hate would These you go? Have you been? Of course I would go. I would love to be invited, but I hate it. I hate everything that I think celebrities, actors are fucking fake as fuck. I think that um, so rarely do we get one that's actually real. They're boring as hell. You, you know, I can't get on a Tonight Show or like a, a, a couch with a fucking late night host to save my life. But I don't understand because, and I don't want to be the first guest. I'm not first guest material, but second guess, who's going to be better second guess than me? Some B list fucking actor from whatever streamings, like actors are not interesting. Do you know that guys ever there? We worship these models. Oh my God. Queen. What is that? Has the hot deed ever since seen said anything interesting? Like, I don't even know what they sound like, but we worship these people who are fake as fuck because all they do is act. They are actors. And I'm not saying comedians are like the answer, but I'm telling you, like the Oscars thing wound me up because I was like, God, comedians are just no one gives a fuck about us, even though we make everything interesting and watchable. The Oscars are unwatchable with someone making jokes. What You just see these people get up and mumble at a mic and like fake cry about an award. Like for what? What did you do? You just pretended to be someone for a couple months and it is very entertaining and thank you for your service. But like, <laughs> this isn't like, you're not doing the Lord's work and neither am I by being a comedian. I'm not saying we're like, we are the true truth tellers and we're the modern day philosophers. We're just idiots with dick jokes with and low self-esteem and mothers who didn't love us enough too. But like, stop acting like you're better than everyone and 
And it's just like, I don't know. I'm, I went off there, but I'm just like, I kind of, I, I want to get in there. Uh, my, my goal is I want to get famous so I can call out famous people for what they're really like. And because once you get in the business, you start to hear stories about what people are really like off camera. You know, we, we know some of these stories that have come out, the Ellen situation. Everyone knew that. Everyone in the business knew about Ellen. You get off the plane in LA to have a career and they tell you, oh, by the way, Ellen's not nice. It's like a, a lay in Hawaii. They like put it around your head and they're like, this is your gift for landing in LA. You get to know Ellen's not nice. And you go, no. And they go, yeah, she's not nice. And then you go, I'm going to go tell my mom back in Missouri. And they go, she's not going to believe you. But just, yeah, sure. Go, go tell people they're not going to believe you because they don't until it came out. But there's so many stories like that. And by the way, I, if I saw Ellen, I would like, I love Ellen. She's allowed to be a bad, like, have you been on she, the show or probably no, not now? Right? No, no, no. And I never will be because, you know, it's gone now. But, and um, if I saw oh, Ellen, gone? I would run the other way. It's I tough think to it's, get booked. She's, she's yeah, ending. It's, yeah. It's, it's tough to get it's, ending. it's over, I guess. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my excuse. Um, But no, I just think that I, my goal now is to get more famous so that I can be, I can say the truth about celebrities and what I know. And, um, and I won't get canceled because now I do walk this line of like, okay, don't say too much because her publicist, she can call her publicist and go, okay, that bitch that talked about me on that podcast, this Nikki Glasser, <laughs> if I will never be on any show that has her on and guess who will never have me on because they want to have that woman on. Like if yeah. you're more famous, you have power. We saw it with Will Smith. If Chris Rock would have slapped Will Smith, do you think Chris Rock would have been able to sit back down? No, he's less famous and revered. So he would have been so, you See, know, but that I, when I don't know, Chris Rock is like way up there. I think it was because it, it was so surprising. Hey, let me ask you yeah. this then, because I wasn't I wasn't sure how it would transition, but you already said it up perfectly. Um, <laughs> social media is, as you pointed out, like it's it's not it's not where you go to, like, find out what people are really thinking at times. Right. Because if, if you're motivated enough to say something, then it means you're likely going to be negative because I always kind of feel like people write complaint letters, but nobody ever writes you a letter to compliment anyone. Right. So, so true. Yes. When. Like it happens and somebody had a, some writer had a great tweet like 24 hours later. He's like, what if Will Smith just slapped Chris Rock? What if what if maybe that was it? Maybe if it, what, it wasn't a reflection of society, it wasn't all these things, these moving pieces. Mm. And you know what I mean? He goes, what if Will Smith just slapped him? And that's all it was. Then it turned into something that I've seen <laughs> more and more the last couple of years. It was like, why do we even need comedians? <laughs> right? Like as if the collective industry is to blame for any of this stuff ever happening because no one should ever be made fun of ever again because we just yes. want to be more respectful. No, my God. I, what that is that so, like ugh. in your world? Like, cause I, do you even care? Is it even a topic? Cause it's certainly I, I not. I want to give people a world without comedy. Let's give, let's give you, is that what you, is that what everyone really wants is like sincerity all the time? I don't think you could handle it. That, that's not a world I want to live in. I want to make fun of people who are being so cool and fake and pretentious. Like that's what comedians and comedians are those things as well, too. There are comedians living you know, lies on stage where they're not the person that they're presenting at all, even though they're presenting like, I tell the truth. This is the this is the raw side of me. And then you find out that they do disgusting things behind this. That's not the whole story. So um, but I do th the whole thing of like, don't make fun of anyone. I just I, it's just I, I really, truly think I turned off the Oscars that night um, early. I went to bed early and you like I care about so the Oscars. Much. Because I just because right. the I knew all the comedians, Amy, Wanda and uh, well, Re Regina isn't a comedian, but Amy and Wanda were done 
doing their bits. There was no more comedy to be had. I was like, I am not interested in this anymore. I don't want to watch things that are not... It. Yes, I could understand watching a drama and it's not. there's no com comedy in it, but the Oscars are not actors acting and doing what they do best. They're just actors patting themselves on the back and being boring and wearing outfits that they're uncomfortable in. It's like, there's nothing interesting about that. Um, I just think, yeah, with the whole you know, PC culture, uh, you know, cancel culture. It's real. It's terrifying. I definitely um, worry. I worry about being canceled by celebrities that I make fun of more than the general public because I, I do worry about losing my career because I like making money um, and not to, to just, you know, I, I just want to like make sure my parents, like when they get cancer, I can like pay their bills. That's really like all I want money for is when people in my life get sick that I can go, I've got it. Don't worry about insurance. Don't worry. Because stress adds so much to your, your disease that people, you know, once you get a disease, you stress over bills and then you're, you're done. So I just, that's why I work. I take every job because I'm like my mom, my, my parents are going to get cancer. Everyone does. I just want to go, dad, relax. Well, I got it. Um, but I'm worried about getting, being canceled for that reason. And, but I also think like, I never intentionally want people to like, I hate celebrities, but I don't really like, I'm mad at JLo for pretending like all she does is like use her skincare line instead of get like, you know, facelifts. But I still feel sad for her that she has to do that. I'm not like, she's a bad person should suffer. Like, I don't want to hurt anyone. So I think when comedians make jokes that actually just hurt people in general if it's funny enough you can go i thought it was funny you know what that was a, it was a bad take i you can i can apologize my point is if i hurt someone and I, someone tries to cancel me and be like that's racist i'll go i really did not think that was contributing to black people being marginalized in society I, I, and now that i know that you felt that way i'm actually sorry like i don't want to do that i can i tell people at my shows it was like don't come up and hit me like just leave Venmo or ask me on DM for Venmo for your returns of, of your ticket because you had a bad time and explain to me why my take was wrong because I don't want to keep putting out stuff that is going to make people who are minorities feel even more, you know, uh, marginalized. Like I don't want to contribute to that, but stereotypes are hilarious. And, um, you know, I tow that line, but I am absolutely willing to apologize for offending people. But, you know, don't hit me about it. That's my, that's my, don't hit, I don't even, don't, don't hit yeah. Nikki. Yeah. Yeah. Don't that, hit if, me. If, if there's any overriding message of this podcast, <laughs> you, want, you want anyone to know that. All right. You ready to do uh, a couple questions here before we bounce? Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Crown Royal. This NBA season, Crown Royal is celebrating the loyal fans that show up for every tip-off. I love every tip-off. I love every one of them. And people ask me, hey, are you tipping off tonight? Because they know that's code for, are the games on? And I'll say, yeah, come on over. Bring your kids. I don't care about the audio feed. You can walk in front of the television. Because this time of year, the second half of the NBA, it's about family. 
And that's one of my favorite things about my life. Crown Royal believes if you live generously, life will treat you royally. Visit crownroyal.com to get ready for tip-off. Please drink responsibly. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. All right, lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Um, all right, stand-up comedy here. Although, I think a lot of guys are just trying to figure out a way to ask you out. So, I could forward really? those. Yeah. I I'll tell you. those emails to you. You don't want this. Guys think they do. Guys are like, no, guys do not like female comics. They can be like, yeah, they're funny, but they don't really want to fuck us. We're too loud and annoying. Like, it's too much yapping. And guys are like, man, it just, you don't want this. Okay. Here's here's a better one, though, because I think you're going to really like this one. (laughs) Okay, good. Because it's kind of along those lines, but it's maybe not specific to you, but somehow (laughs) includes me into this. All right. So here we go. Uh, um, Our guy, Josh, checking in, uh, wanted wanted to hear the perspective of a female celebrity. I live in LA and occasionally bumped into some female celebrities, gym, coffee shop, work-related events. He's 25, 5'10", 170. He's a good-looking guy, obviously confident, works in production. Uh, It's fairly common for me to exchange pleasantries with some celebs and have a casual conversation, but I usually just leave it there and let them go on their day. Uh, I've always wanted to try to shoot my shot for when the situation feels right, but it feels odd being some random guy asking a famous person. And your experience, Nikki, and maybe Ryan, too. I like that I was included in this one. Does it feel weird for someone to approach you that knows you're famous or a fan of yours and try to ask you out? Mostly guys just ask me about basketball. But (laughs) But do they want to hang out and be friends? I mean, it's the same thing as wanting to be friends with celebrity i will say that the worst approach is to act like you aren't familiar with the person because when guys go i've never heard of you i don't care if you've never heard of me it's fine i don't i'm not like offended by that but i'm not gonna probably want to hang out with you because if you haven't at least heard my name then you don't enjoy comedy or stand-up comedy or and so we're probably not gonna get along because i like stand-up comedy so that just to me tells you don't need to be a super fan but it's very flattering. I think that if you saw a, a girl at the gym that is famous and you're a fan, it's a casual like, hey, I really enjoy your work. You know, say something like that. Specific, um, though, maybe like I really liked this specific a is, fan. I got to say specific Uh-oh. is a lot of times, you know, this, Ryan, because when people will come up to you and say like what they love of yours, it's usually something that you've heard a million times. They think it's very specific, like. I love this one roast joke you did, Nikki. And they'll think that like they're proving themselves as like this Uber fan, which they are, no doubt about it. But what they don't know is I've heard that from every single person because everyone's trying to be specific. So I like a general, I like your work. And celebrities are so insecure that if you say you liked one thing, we take it as you didn't like the rest and that you only like that one thing. And a lot of times that one thing you like was a line our friend gave us or a joke that was written by one of the writers on the show or was a joke that we don't really like ourselves. And so suddenly you've completely uh, wow, this made is yourself great. I'm someone, learning. It's not just the email. I'm, I'm learning now. Nothing's it's specific. true. It's like, yeah. I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind specifics because there are times people go, I love this one roast joke. And I'm like, wow, I don't even remember that one. And that was actually one of my favorites. And thank you. But generally people pick the same things. And it's like the thing of um, the bystander effect where you do something, you don't do something or you do something because you think everyone does it. So 
a lot of times people don't approach celebrities or ask them out because they go, everyone's shooting their shot with her. But everyone thinks that everyone is. So no one does. I'm on TV so often on things or I'll pop up. Someone will talk about me on a popular podcast. And it's, you know, Howard Stern will mention me. I have so many friends that listen to Howard Stern and no one will write me about it because they think that she's probably getting thousands of texts about this. So no one does. So I say shoot your shot because everyone else is going, everyone's, you know, trying to hit up Margot Robbie. So no one does. Models and celebrities, I think, get hit on way less than you think. They actually, um, I think that if you are brave enough to, it shows confidence. And that is so sexy to a woman. All you have to say is I'm a fan of your work. Maybe if you see this person frequently, first as a fan of your work, chat them up a little bit. And then the next time is you just give them your number. The best pickup technique I ever heard is from my friend. He's an Australian um, celebrity. His name's Andy Lee, but he um, said, you get write down your email. And and this was back when, I guess, texting was less ubiquitous, but you write down your email or number or whatever, and you give it to them and say, hey, here's my number. Here's my email. Email's a little less like immediate, you know? Email's good. Here's my email. If you want to ever go out, shoot me your number. Um, and if I don't hear from you, I'm just going to convince myself that you lost this piece of paper. And if you do, great. So it's like a smooth thing where it's like, you're making a joke, like you're obviously, and you just leave. So it's in her hands. You've made it clear. You're not like, hey, can I get your number? And she's like, oh, just give her your email. Say this is, you know, it's not a phone yet, but if you want to give me your number, email it to me. And I think that's a good move. That would be funny though, like, because you have the guys that will do or, a girl can do it too. Is they'll give the six of the seven numbers and be like, it's up oh, to yeah. you. And then, but you could do it with the email and just have it be .co. And then you're like, it's up to you. <laughs> That's to, really funny. To figure it out. All right. You can steal that if you want. <laughs> That's really uh, good. All right. We got a stand up one here. Um, hey, Nikki, 30 year old dentist. I don't know. Wait a minute. Where's is this guy out of St. Louis? Yeah. Um, <laughs> is he diagnosing children? <laughs> All right, trying to get into the stand-up game. There's just moments where I'm gazing into an 85-year-old woman's plaque-filled mouth and wonder exactly what is my life. Obviously, I have to drill teeth to eat, but I'd least like to get... So at first, that was a little confusing. I was like, are you doing the stand-up routine in the patients? But no, he's talking about dentistry. Okay, so he's like, look, I want to make this a solid side gig. I've done several shows, and the ones in front of crowds who weren't all comedians have gone pretty well. Uh, got some solid yeah. laughs. However, <laughs> these shows are kind of few and far between. And the rest of the time I've performed, it's been at open mics where the only crowd is the other people performing. At pretty much every single open mic I've been to, the room is just fucking dead. Some of the performers yeah. are solid, but almost everything gets met with soul-crushing silence. The environment yep. kind of sucks to perform in. So basically, he's like, should I try to figure something else out? Are the open mics a waste of time? No, they're all you have, honestly. It sucks, but it's true. It's like... I, I feel that, you know, and 30 is not too old. There's never an, too old to start because you're going to kick yourself when you actually do get the balls to start and you're going to go, fuck, why didn't I do this sooner? So just stop dilly dallying and get just do it. It's you're going to bomb so severely. I've gone up in front of so many rooms of just co like cool comics who are just there judging you, hate you because you might be funnier than them or they think you might suck and so they don't laugh or they laugh sarcastically. It's brutal, but you need to practice saying things into a microphone in front of people. You need... I can do anything now because I... Nothing hurts as much as those times where I bombed in front of comedians that I, you know, revered 
in my different scenes that I started in, you know, St. Louis and Kansas City and then LA. I was on the open mic scene. It's brutal. It was just, but there's nothing that you'll ever feel that's worse than that. So it prepares you for the future. It prepares you for when you say a joke on stage and Will Smith starts, you know, trampling up towards you. Like those moments you can, nothing surprises you after that. So it's, there's no, stand-up comedy is not comfortable. And if you want it to be, it's you're not cut out for it. Like it's just... But if you have that urge where you're thinking about it all the time and you just feel like it's this missed opportunity, just do it. Just there's no easy way to do it. I, I wish there were. I wish there was like some streamlined thing. It's just about getting those 10,000 hours and you've got like jump on Zoom shows like at any mu- practice. I do recommend people starting a podcast like uh, or putting out YouTube videos of them on mic. Like even if your dad is just watching, it's practice. It's you on mic. That's why I do a podcast four days a week as opposed to one because I want those 10,000 hours quicker. I want to be better. And that's why I used to do like five sets a night because like I knew every set was contributing to me being closer to being an expert and being undeniable. And there's no other way to get there. So just do it. Night. All right. That's a good one. All right. Uh, here's a different one. Six one. Guys chime in with their height. I, we don't know how it started. <laughs> And their weight different. Oh, a 628 mile. He says he can dunk on a good day. So these are all. Oh, just, my God. 628. All right. Just factor all these in when you answer. All this. right. I'm, um, I'm into it. I am a, quote, stand up comedian living in a city with a great comedy and open mic scene. I've been doing stand up for roughly six months. I go to nightly open mics and I'm able to get a few laughs here and there. I like some of my jokes, but get tired of them quickly and find myself yeah. abandoning the ones that work because I no longer find them funny. My question for Nikki is, yeah. how do I stay confident in my, my material? Am I abandoning these jokes because deep down I know they're not great or am I abandoning them because I'm lazy and don't want to dig deeper into the material? Uh, man, I relate to this so much, dude. This is like so common. I, like you're speaking my language. I do the same thing. I think that's good. I think it's good that you were like, you get tired. You go, okay. Like, you know, it's your six, six twenty nine mile. You're like, okay, I don't want to, I want to run six twenty eight now. You're just like, you get bored with the thing that you already accomplished the thing. Okay. I did a good joke. It gets laughs. Everyone, you know, if you're doing open mics, comedians are there and they've already heard that joke. So you're, you're constantly wanting to do better. Now, don't forget those jokes because years later, when you know you're performing for different crowds who haven't heard it, you can re-approach those ones and b- breathe new life into them. But no, I think that is a great approach. I love. I think this is what makes a good comedian. The kind of comedians I like is ones that don't just do the same material over and over and over. That means you're present. That means you're actually having fun on stage. That means you're not just doing a performance. Like you are invested in the time you're having. You're bored with those jokes, so you're not doing them. I don't want to watch a comedian who's just, you know, that's why I don't go to Broadway shows. I feel bad that they're just like, I'm a robot performing. Like there's nothing they can do different to make it fun for them. I mean, I'm sure there's little things, but I like when comedians are doing what they want to do, even if it's not the jokes I want to hear. I At least I want them to be happy. I want them to be having fun. So I think you're, just don't lose those jokes. Write them down, keep them somewhere and return to them when you're a better comedian and you'll breathe life into them and, and they'll be so much funnier. Okay, last one. And this is kind of like, we've gotten this from a ton of different people. All right. And it was very relationship driven in that. I think it was a lot of people in New York City, but it plays in any major city where it's like they go to the open mics and they feel like, okay, I'm sitting by myself. How hard do I have to work at making friends? Like hard we, we yeah so how realistic well not realistic because we know that it's very realistic what unless is that part you're, of it 
unless you're the best comic on scene and have like this kind of a lot of there are a lot of comedians every comedian listening in a small town knows the guy who's like a brilliant robot joke writer who just writes these jokes that you're like Mitch Hedberg-esque but is a social socially anxious kind of I, I think Mitch Hedberg was actually very friendly off stage but their guy that keeps to himself is like kind of scary off stage but like on stage is just the comic's favorite comic because he just does these brilliant jokes that guy doesn't need to be kind and social he'll be fine um and there's no choice he really has but if you're someone who generally likes people and wants to make friends like try to find your crew because i my advice to comedians all the time is be cool and nice and supportive after a comedian gets off stage go up and say i love that one joke great set like be be nice because first of all you want it too and it'll come back to you all we want as comedians is for people to love us people think comedians love to like get people uncomfortable and make us and challenge things no we are desperate to be liked why are we doing something where we need to know you if you like us every five seconds because you laugh otherwise we'd be singers and songwriters that wait four minutes until the applause that is mandatory like we desire people liking us so be nice and also the way to get ahead because this industry is so fucked that um you don't start making money till you're you know a headliner like good money and anything before that you make garbage money unless a headliner likes you and takes you on the road with them and then supplements the money the clubs are not, you know, the clubs are paying you a hundred bucks a show. So a lot of times a, a cool headliner that's your friend that brings you on the road will give you all of their dates and then also throw money on top of that. The only way to actually make money as an opener is to be cool and to be someone that comedians go, God, I want this guy around. Everyone that I've ever brought on the road to open for me um, or, or, you know, written the Fallon booker to be like, you need to check out this kid or whatever. Not only have they been funny, which, you know, should always be your number one goal, but they've been nice guys and nice girls and just cool people that are fun to be around, easy to be around, helpful. You know, I always tell young comics, if a comic is coming in town, go up to the, go to their shows, compliment the fuck out of them. There's never anyone that's too famous that they don't want to hear their good job. I learned that when Chris Rock, I was at the Comedy Cellar one night years ago and Chris Rock was coming off stage and going up the stairs and I was like he had a good set obviously but like did I need to say good set to Chris Rock like obviously and so I wasn't gonna say it and then I go wait is there ever gonna be a time in my life where I won't want to hear good set no matter how famous I get from you know another comedian not that he knew I was a comedian but like you never tire of hearing good job it's just make it quick you don't need to fawn over them and like can I have your autograph can I have a picture just go I love your work like just I always tell people to do drive-by compliments to celebrities just to minimize annoyance but celebrities love compliments they love it and so i said i remember saying to chris rock good set and i remember he looked at me like he needed it you know like thank you like he we still want it so be cool be complimentary offer to get them weed if they're in a town like that bloomington indiana where they don't know where to get weed and you know that they smoke weed offer to drive them places while they're in town like be helpful don't be weird. Do not ask them to watch your set and to give you notes. Please, for the fucking love of God, just do the work. No comedian is going to watch your set. They'll they'll watch your set eventually on their own time. Do not ask comedians for that aren't on your same level for help on your set and to watch your set. Don't do it. When people ask me that, I'm not rude about it, but I just go, no, I'm not going to do that because I never did that. I wouldn't bother, you know, Doug Benson, who, you know, I opened for, Burt Kreischer, who I used to open for, all these, I wouldn't have been like, can you watch my set? I was embarrassed of my set. Like, you should be. You suck. You're you're new. You suck. Until you're like 10 years in, you fucking suck. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that, 
not everyone, but like, just don't, don't bother comedians. Just be helpful, be fun to be around, be a good time, laugh at their jokes. And I guarantee you, they'll go, do you ever go on the road? Um, like, do you, do you want to maybe open for me next weekend? I'm, uh, you know, in Peoria. And then you'll start getting gigs because you're just cool and easy to be around. So being friendly is a huge, huge part of doing stand-up. Huge. Be social. Be nice. This was awesome. Um, just so everybody knows, again, Nikki's show, Welcome Home, Nikki Blazers on E. The first episode was May 1st. I enjoyed it. Uh, Thank and then, of you. course, you've got your podcast that's out. And uh, it's out. God, that's quite a few episodes. I didn't realize you were know, doing it that I know. I used to do it, do it. We do it Monday through Thursday. It's insane. I, I, you know, I'm a workaholic, but yeah, I just like doing something every day too. Like I like, I used to love morning radio shows, driving to work, expecting the same thing every day. I kind of, and there's something about when you do one podcast a week that every time it shows up, you go, oh, you know, but if you're going to the gym once a week or you're going to the gym four times a week, there's something like habitual about it where it's like, oh, this is just what I do as opposed to like, oh, I got to do a podcast tomorrow. It's just like, yeah, okay, well, I have to like also eat breakfast and fucking take a shit, you know, like it's just part of my day now. And, um, and 10,000 hours, man, you got to get those. Yeah, I totally get it. I go to the gym a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I don't go to the gym at all. That was a bad analogy for me. too. <laughs> but I assume people that go to the gym do find it easier if they make it a habit. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, Nikki. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Ryan, with the knee. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, please subscribe to the Ryan Russell podcast. We're on Spotify. Thanks to Kyle and Steve. As always, we will be back on Thursday. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.